That's So Hindu. I'm Matt McDermott. In this episode, I speak with Dandapani, a former Hindu monk in the Saiva Siddhanta tradition, currently living in Asara, Costa Rica. Dandapani is now an international speaker, helping people understand and leverage their mind and be the best version of themselves in order to live a life of purpose and joy. We discuss the retreat center and botanical garden he's founded, how we can learn to better focus our minds, Hindu practices for dealing with crisis, and the importance of employing reason on our spiritual journeys. Hope you enjoy it. So when we first met, it was you know several years ago, maybe a decade ago now, you'd fairly recently made the transition from being a monk in Hawaii to teaching meditation. How and why did that come about? Yeah, so as you know, I lived as a, as a monk at my guru's monastery on Kauai. So the Kauai Adina Kauai in the monastery. And um, yeah, I, I would say that, you know, a few... Three years after I joined the monastery, unfortunately, my guru passed away and I stayed for seven more years. And, you know, at that point, I felt we were not aligned and uh, my vows came up for renewal and uh, I chose not to renew them, which was a very difficult decision for me because I didn't go into the monastery planning that I would leave one day. My, my goal was to live there till, you know. I died. And uh, so I left and instead of going back to Australia, I moved to the mainland US. I actually, you know, um, landed in LA and stayed in it and then drove to Santa Monica backpacker motel. And that was where I spent my first night in Santa Monica. So I'm not a monk anymore. I'm a priest. Right? Uh, a very, very important distinction that most people don't can't tell the difference. <laughs> if most people can't tell the difference, what, let's tell them what, what is the difference between being a Hindu monk and a priest? Yeah. So in Hindu, in Hinduism, there are two uh, clearly defined paths. There's the path of the householder and then the path of the monastic. So as a monastic, there's some basic rules that most monastics adhere to you. You live a life of renunciation, celibacy. You typically don't work and earn money or you don't work and earn money. You live off donations, contributions. So, so and you either live in cloisters with other monastics or sometimes by yourself as a wandering mendicant, for example. Uh, a householder is someone who gets married. Uh, they don't have to, but uh, they can get married. They can have children. They can work in McDonald's, live, work as an entrepreneur have kids. So in Hinduism, priests fall under the category of um, householders. For example, in the Catholic faith, Catholic priests and Catholic monks are very similar. They both lead celibate lives. They live in cloisters with each other or individually. But priests and monks in Catholic faith uh, kind of follow the similar, very similar discipline. So I think that can sometimes create confusion. And, and I think the other thing that's confusing, two other things I would say that are confusing to Hindus uh, or most people about Hindu priests and monks is that we dress very similarly. And unless you can tell the difference, it's very hard to point out the difference between a Hindu priest and a Hindu monk. So people looking at me and go, oh, he looks like a monk, but no, this is such Hindu priests in Sri Lanka wear this and in Tamil Nadu dress like this. Um, typically, if you've taken lifetime vows as a Hindu monastic, you're given the title Swami and you wear an orange and ochre colored rope. And that's one distinct way to say that, yes, yeah, somebody is a lifetime renunciate. Also in Hinduism, monks can take vows uh, in terms of two years uh, in some traditions as they prepare to take lifetime vows. So I would say that's the big distinct thing. And, and then I think the other confusing thing is that, you know, typically people in India, um, Sri Lanka, Southeast Asia, Hindus, 
will we'll look at a priest and uh, will look at a monk and go Swami and refer to them as Swami. I just call them Swami. I, I have, you know, brown Hindus calling me Sami, Swami all the time. And I'm going like, dude, I'm not a Swami. You know, uh, I'm a priest. <laughs> but it's just part of the cultural thing. And then I think that can also lead to confusion that someone hearing that go like, oh, he's a Swami. He's not. As I said, we, we met, I came to one of your meditation classes. Um, yeah. And... Yeah, I know you've been doing that and you've been doing a lot of speaking for corporate clients. How did that come about? And how do you have to translate or transliterate, if you will, Hindu teachings for that sort of audience? Yeah. So to answer the first question first, I, you know, when I came out, I, I, I made the conscious choice to be a priest. I mean, I technically I could have continued to live as a monk if I wanted to. There's no reason to. But then, you know, if I lived as a monk, I would need to follow certain rules of not working in any money. So then I would need to create a congregation. The congregation would need to donate to me. And that leads to a lot of subtle complication and not so subtle, complicated things. So I didn't want to go down that path, having seen the monastic model for 10 years all around the world. Um, so I chose to be a priest where I could go out and and money and and then I can say whatever I want to say and I, I don't owe anybody or anyone anything and if people don't like me it's hit the unsubscribe button or close the window you know it's easy as that um so that's how I went into that that I I would say you know the because I had been out of the world for for 10 years the first audience that I could connect with was probably the yoga community that was the easiest to touch base with and so I, I never worked at any one particular yoga studio but I spoke at different yoga studios doing weekend workshops and things like that so I did that for about I think three four years and and then I started speaking to a, a group of entrepreneurs and I just found that the group of entrepreneurs were more aligned with my way of thinking and we kind of resonated or we're more aligned is probably the better word to use. And so, so to, to and, just to pause there, you, you yeah. found these entrepreneurs were more aligned with what you were saying than the yoga community. Is that surprising to you? I mean, it, it's, it, it seems so to me, at least on first read. Well, it wasn't that the yoga community wasn't aligned. They, they never said like, Oh, I don't believe anything you're saying or whatever you're saying is, is nonsense. No, it, I found that the entrepreneur community were, were more determined into putting the tools into consistent practice. They had a very methodical approach towards getting to a clearly defined goal. And I suppose they needed to do that having to run a business and some were small businesses. When I say small, they were, you know, a few million dollars and some were mid-sized business and some were large businesses. You know, you're talking hundreds of millions of dollars, billion dollar businesses. You, you'd have to have a structured approach to run a business like that. And, and they brought that structure into uh, working with me. And, and that's kind of how I was trained by my guru, Guru Devas, Guru Swami. He, he was the first Hindu monastic that I had met, even though I grew up in a Hindu culture and met countless Swamis, monks, gurus along the way growing up as a child. I found that he had a very structured approach to its unfoldment. So structured that it even, he, he taught me to even measure growth. <laughs> which is how entrepreneurs look at business. Are we growing? Can we measure our growth? If you can't measure it, are, are we actually making change? I can say I'm eating a healthy diet, but you know, I want to lose weight. But after 10 months of my healthy diet, you know, air quotes, I'm, I'm, I haven't lost a pound. And well, my measurement shows I'm not making any progress. So 
I think when I started working with entrepreneurs and saw how structured they were and they understood that I was taking a structured approach towards personal growth, spirituality, defining goals, defining steps, measuring if we're making progress or not making progress. I, I just found a community that just aligned on, on almost everything. And, and we just gelled and, and that's kind of been the community I've been working with now and also uh, professional athletes in, in, in recent years, because the same way, like entrepreneurs, they, they very clearly define goals that they want to get to. So what are you, what are you teaching them? Exactly. I mean, our general methodology yeah. towards discipline, focus, that sort of thing, or do you get into the, the actual Hindu part of it or is it, you know, just under the surface someplace? Yeah. So I'm very, uh, clearly Hindu in the sense that I tell people I'm a Hindu priest. I, I don't hide that. My, my God gives me away if unless someone's blind. Um, so people know everything is coming from a Hindu perspective, from Hindu philosophy. I, I'm very clear about that. My audience typically are made up of all walks of life when it comes to philosophy. So, you know, there could be Hindus in the audience, Christians, Jews, Muslims, atheists, agnostics. Uh, so when, when I share, I share that it's coming from Hindu teachings, but I share it in a way that anyone can take it and apply it in their life. Right. So I'm not bringing the, um, the Hindu for lack of better words, religious aspect of it, of rituals, deities, you know, uh, if you pray to Ganesha, this, 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 you know, will happen or, and so forth. When I'm talking to a purely Hindu community, then I do take that approach. But typically with entrepreneurs and athletes that I work, um, I always start with the understanding of the mind. You know, one thing I learned from Gurudeva, my guru, that, you know, we all have a mind. It's the most powerful tool in the world, yet we're never taught how to use it. You know, until I met him, nobody taught me how the mind works. Nobody taught me how to understand it, how to harness it, how to leverage the mind to create what we want to create in, the, in life. You know, whether it's for family, for work, for environment reasons, for personal growth, spiritual unfoldment. So I always start with that. I, I just call it the the fundamental one oh one thing that every human being needs to know, regardless of what philosophy you subscribe to. Everyone should know how to read and write, count, you know, basic, basic things. So I, I think understanding the mind is is no different. Mm -hmm. So typically that's where I start. And then the other thing that I talk a lot about is um concentration, right? How do we actually focus? Growing up, I got told to focus all the time. People said, you know, Dandapani, focus on your homework. Dandapani, focus and concentrate on eating your food. Want to show me how? No, no one showed me how to. They just told me to do it. And, and this happens all the time. We tell our children to focus. We tell our employees to focus. Coaches tell their, their teams, hey, guys, we're 1-0 down at halftime, 45 minutes left. We've got to go out there. You've got to be real. we got to be really focused. All that's great and inspiring, but how the heck do you actually do it? Well, how do you do it then? <laughs> you, you learn about the mind. You learn about the mind and you learn how to harness the mind. You learn the actual art of concentrating. You learn how to integrate. Well, there's two things with concentration, right? One is learning and the second part is practicing. Because if you can learn something, but if you don't practice it, you'll never be good at it. If I wanted to play the piano, I need to learn to play the piano hopefully from someone who, who knows how to play the piano. And then the second thing I need to do is practice. So similarly with focus, focus is a means towards getting something. So for example, if I say, I want to enjoy my time with my daughter, 
how do I achieve that? What, why do I want that? I want that so that I can experience it fully. We can have a rich, joyous experience together. In order to achieve that, I need to learn to focus. The better I focus, the richer the experience. Focus leads to giving you something else that you want, if that makes sense. It does. For those people and, listening. And, and also, ahead. Matt, yeah, sorry. so just one other thing. You know, if you look at Raja Yoga and the eight steps, Dharana is concentration. It's built into Raja, Raja Yoga. Dharana comes before Dhyana. Sure. Concentration comes before meditation, but no one teaches how to meditate. Why? Because it's cooler. And you make a lot more money teaching someone how to meditate than you would teaching them how to concentrate. Well, I, I suppose most people think they can concentrate, but then they sit down and maybe it's a little bit more difficult. Um, a little bit. <laughs> um, for those people listening, there were some glitches in the audio there, um, yeah. which leads into my next question. You're in Costa Rica right now. Um, yes. And your connection was going in and out and you're in Nosara, yeah. Costa Rica and it's a place I've been. So I can attest to the internet qualities and always up to us standards. However, it's a wonderful place. Um, and you've started a retreat center there called Shiva Ashram. What's yep. the long-term plan for that? And before you answer in full disclosure, I donated some money to help you buy some trees many years ago. And I just want to make sure that, you know, I, I think this is a great project and I, I want to hear about it. And I'm not but a neutral perspective, even though I've donated. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your donation. You were actually one of the first people to ever donate for a tree. And the two uh, cyber trees that you donated, the pseudobombax trees, are 30 feet tall each. Uh, they flank the, our first shrine, which is dedicated to Ganesha. Uh, and, and when we planted them, they were about four feet tall. And that was about seven years ago. They're about well over 30 feet now. Uh, and, and they just stand, sit overlooking the Ganesha shrine. I'll send you some pictures. And then you donated a bunch of other trees too. You donated our monkey highway. We, we want to bridge our property with the, with the jungle next door and there's a road. So we, we planted these trees that you donated uh, that the monkeys love to eat the flowers and the leaves, the young leaves. So uh, it creates what we call our monkey highway connecting the jungle to Sivashra. Yeah. So for people that haven't been there, one of the issues is there are lots of howler monkeys. And if you don't have a place yes. for them to go, they will climb on power lines when they don't end up. Yes. So they get injured. So this will exactly. Help. Yeah. So yeah, we have 33 acres of land. Um, the, the goal is to create uh, a Hindu spiritual sanctuary, uh, a botanical garden, a few purposes, I would say. Uh, the central purpose is to build a Siva temple on there to be a physical place that can disseminate the teachings of my guru, my guru's guru of our lineage. Um, my family comes from Sri Lanka and my, my parents, my grandparents, my great grandparents were all disciples of Yoga Swami, my guru's guru. And they lived in the same town. So many members of my family were even named by my guru's guru. So we want to share the teachings. We want to make the ashram a place to disseminate this teaching. So that's the physical presence of it. We'll, we'll build a Siva temple. We, we also, uh, big believers in the environment and the importance of caring for the environment. There's no point building temples if you don't care for this planet. You know, uh, there'll be nobody left to live to go into those temples and worship if we don't take care of the planet. So the idea is to create this uh, beautiful botanical garden to fulfill a couple of purposes. One, educate people on the environment 
and the importance of it to uh, bring back plants and trees that are going extinct here in this particular region and also around the world. Another part of the garden is uh, we've divided the entire garden into seven smaller gardens, each representing one of the seven chakras. So the first garden is dedicated to Ganesha because he lives in the first chakra. And every garden has a color theme. So the first garden is red because the first chakra is red. So we planted red flowering trees around there to, to symbolize that. And it, when, when a visitor or pilgrim comes to the place, when they come to the first garden, they will learn a tool about the first chakra, which represents uh, time, memory, and space, right? Your subconscious mind. So they will learn a tool in the first chakra. And then when they go to the second chakra, which is intellect or reason, that's we have orange flowering plants and trees. They'll learn a tool about how to work with that. And then they go to willpower, the third chakra, uh, which is yellow. We have yellow flowering trees. Uh, they will learn how to develop willpower. So even Frank from Idaho, who comes, who has no interest in, you know, spirituality or whoever it may be. I'm not saying that people from Idaho don't have interest in spirituality, but someone who comes and is walking through the garden, who's just maybe interested in looking at the garden. So wants something to do in Lusara in between surfing will uh, come across these, these gardens and, and hopefully learn a tool that they can empower themselves with, take back uh, and positively impact their lives and perhaps those of their families as well. So the garden serving that purpose, uh, and, and we have a 50-year plan for Siva Ashram, and we have a 300-year plan. So the uh, the idea is that how does this keep going beyond our time, right? So this is uh, um, a service. And the primary part of the entire Siva Ashram project, besides what I've shared with you, is to, I would say... Um, I probably haven't found the right words to articulate this. So this is still first draft um, to dismiss the misconceptions within Hinduism, which there, I believe there are tons of. Uh, and, and most people, especially, well, well, you know, obviously it's going to be conveyed in Costa Rica in, in English because I, you know, I don't, I don't speak Hindi. My tunnel is nowhere good enough to put anything. So the idea is to dismiss a lot of the misconceptions around Hinduism, primarily to Hindus around the world, and especially our generation of Hindus and the younger generation of Hindus that, that think Hinduism to be what their parents believe Hinduism is, which I, I don't believe a lot of the things that they believe in. You're really, teasing, you're really teasing out something there. So, so yes. what, 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 yeah. are the, what are the, what are these misconceptions? I realize this is, you know, as you said, first, first draft here. And what, yeah. so what are the top ones then? Top one is, um, I think I could go to most Hindus around the world and ask that it's the core belief of Hinduism, ahimsa, nonviolence in thought, word, and deed. And most Hindus will probably say yes, right? Would that be a fair generalization? For a good number of people, sure. Yes. For a good number of people, right? It's a common belief of Hinduism. But then if you look at the most of the stories that Hindus tell their children, priests tell at temples or gurus tell at satsangs and gatherings, they're riddled with violence. Open an Amachita comic book. What's the common theme? Blood splatter on every page. They use more red ink than probably any other colored ink in the book. It's riddled with violence. Why is a religion based on the concept of nonviolence and thought, word, and deed? 
in the belief that God is in everything, right? Which most Hindus probably will buy into that concept, at least a majority of it was an election where it went in. Uh, why are we going around teaching everybody that it's all about violence? I mean, poor Ganesha, in order to get his head, she had to come around with a machete and log it off. Mm. I mean, that's pretty graphic. Even for Hollywood, it would be a mature audience. It, it would, sure, it would. You couldn't tell sure. that story otherwise. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, why, why, why is that? Why is a religion based on the concept of nonviolence so riddled with violence? You know? And, and and why do we keep perpetuating something without even reflecting about it and thinking if it's aligned with what the religion is all about? Love, nonviolence, all pervasiveness of divinity, the equal treatment of man and woman, right? God is in me and in you. God is in a man equally as it is in a woman. Yet women aren't treated very well. Women aren't allowed to do certain things. Aren't allowed to be priests on this, on that. You know, wow, we've got a million stories and reasons for all of these things. I call bullshit on all of it. So, and I think the next generation of Hindus who are smart, young, educated, intelligent young boys and girls will listen to reason. And, and there's a monk in the monastery. Uh, He's, he's still there. Uh, but we we kind of joined the monastery a couple of years apart from each other. He had a beautiful saying. Uh, he said, um, reason should not end where spirituality begins. Isn't that beautiful? Reason yeah. should not end where spirituality begins. And, and for most religions, reason ends where religion begins. All reason goes out the window. Why? In every aspect of life, you don't abandon reason. You try not to. But then when it comes to spirituality, we throw out the window. So, so that's something we would like to work to dismiss, you know. To, and, the, and the primary purpose of that is, first of all, I think it's erroneous to believe that Hinduism is based on violence. It's not. Not from my personal experience. Second is that how do we continue to encourage the next generation, the current generation, the next generation, to embrace the religion. And, and unless the religion can make their life better, there's no reason to gravitate towards it. We do things because it makes a difference in our life. Someone drinks a glass of wine, eats ice cream, goes bungee jumping because it gives them the feeling that they want. Hinduism should give young Hindus, all Hindus, the feeling that they want and therefore the need for religion as opposed to feeling a sense of obligation because you were born a Hindu. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's not the relationship that, you know, we, we should be cultivating in the religion, a sense of obligation. It should be a sense of mutual sharing, right? I mean, that's what the Siddhanta philosophy is. God takes one step towards you, take one step towards God, you meet in the middle, transformation takes place there. What a beautiful concept my guru, you know, took Siddhanta and summarized to, to that understanding. But there needs to be, it should be reasonable. That's not too much to ask. <laughs> I don't think it's too much to ask. I mean, you've... Yeah. You know, to peel back the curtain, you wanted to talk about this. What's the role of reason in religion? Yeah, and and you started to go there, but I mean, what 
what else do you have to say about that? Because it seems like it, it, it's a big, a big topic. I mean, you always hear conflicts between science and religion, reason f- figures into that. And yeah. to me, it's a, if I had to guess what you wanted to talk about, it would be something along the lines of not just taking things on face value or strictly on faith about testing out things and engaging with the world and not turning off your critical faculties. Am I on the mark or no? Yes, exactly. Yes. And, you know, we, we have to understand Hinduism's, uh, you know, an old, old religion. And, and along the way, a lot of people say the religion has evolved. I, I don't want to use the word evolved. I would say morphed is a better word. Evolved means something has matured, which means that it has become wiser with time. It, it has not, to be honest, you know, uh, uh, and it has morphed to what it is today. So we, we need to look at it objectively understand what are the fundamental principles of Hinduism and then take what we understand today, what we're being taught today and compare it with the fundamental principles of Hinduism. And and we don't have to go crazy with the fundamental principles of Hinduism. Let's just take five, right? Basic ones to believe that God is in everything. Most Hindus will probably say yes. If we were taking a vote, We'd, we'd probably win. I, I think right. the, in the latest, I don't know if you've seen it, but Pew Research just did a survey and most Hindus do believe that, at least in India. Okay. So let, let's go with that. Put a check mark next to that one. Do you believe in reincarnation? Most Hindus will probably put a check mark on I've, that one. I've got an answer to that one too. This is very fortuitous. 40% is okay. the answer according to Pew. 40% belief in reincarnation. Yeah. And here, here's one to throw at you, but 70 uh-huh. something percent believe in karma. But only forty percent believe in reincarnation. I'm not quite. I'm still wrapping my head around that one. Yeah, I, I would like to know where, who they surveyed, and who they asked, and what's the the net that they cast. You know, I bet you if you go around India, and I've been to India a million times, and everyone talks about reincarnation. You know? sure. So, so reincarnation, karma, you know, kind of acceptable beliefs, um, ahimsa, nonviolence. You know, I think most Hindus would probably go with that. You know, we tend to be typically nonviolent people. You know, I mean, there's extremists in every every group. So even if you were just to look at those four things, you know, and, and base what you're learning from today and seeing what you believe in today, so much would contradict. I mean, take the, the classic example I always use is the, how Ganesha got his head story, right? You know, Parvati was taking a bath. Ganesha was standing outside, not letting anyone go in. Shiva comes, wants to go in. I mean, some version of this, right? There's, there's, there's some tweaks to depending where it's told. So he comes, he wants to get in. The kid says no. He gets upset. They get into a fight. He lobs his head off. Mother comes out. says, oh my God, that's our son. Oh, I didn't know that's our son. What do you mean? You're the supreme God. You don't know that's your son. The only way a man doesn't know that's his son is he's been sleeping around. So you're telling Shiva's been sleeping around, doesn't know that was his son. And I thought he was the all-knowing supreme God. Well, all of a sudden, he's ignorant of the fact that that's his boy. Okay, so he goes, oh my God, that's a son. I just killed him. So don't worry. Hang on. Hang tight. I'll be right back. I'm going to go into the forest, find the first animal I can find, cut his head off or its head off. So he finds an elephant. And if you've ever stood next to an elephant, Matt, and I don't know if you have or not. I have, yes. (laughs) They are massive, first of all, right? I think largest land animal, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Strong, 
but yeah, it's so gentle, right? I mean, you could stand next to an elephant, like literally next to an elephant and it won't knock you over. It has this amazing sense of knowing that you're there. It could easily like bump you over, but it, it doesn't, right? It's so gentle. So cut the elephant's head off, comes back, takes this gigantic elephant's head, screws it onto the boy's head. Lo and behold, we have Ganesha. Most freaking absurd story in the world. It really is. I mean, I would never tell my daughter that story. First of all, I don't want to talk to, I mean, okay, let me ask you this, Matt. What would a young kid, and, and take this as a real scenario, what would a young kid have to do to you that you would be so upset to take some form of a sword or a knife or machete and lob the kid's head off? I cannot imagine. Not so even if, they, even if you live in America, even if the kid took a gun and shot you in the knee and, you know, he was half your size, you'd probably jump on him on, with one leg and rest him to the ground and probably pull the gun away and, yes. you know, hope the cops come and people help you out, right? Yeah. Off his head off? I mean, does Shiva have anger management issues? No, I mean, it's a fair yeah. question. No, it is. It is. Right? It, it's, and it, I think it's a good example because... And that's story I mean, that, that, that's everywhere. It, it is. And, and in all honesty, it doesn't resonate with me. I don't, I, I mean, I, I've heard plenty of explanations for all of it, all of the reasoning behind that story, but it just doesn't resonate. I mean, if we're talking about newer, newer Hindus, in my case, you know, adopting this religion, coming to it yeah. or, or younger generation, I, I don't see the resonance in that one. And then here's people saying, and I've had people say, give me the excuse, like, well, it's a story to convey a deeper meaning. I'm like, okay, that's, we use stories all the time to convey deeper meanings. I have this book, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. He tells stories in here to convey a point. But do we need to use a violent story to convey a point? And this is a true story that did happen in, in the inner planes of existence in the Devaloka. And she was pretty mean dude. And I can tell you in my 47 years of living on this planet and praying to Siva and I'm a Shaivite, I've never experienced violence or anger in Shiva. I can honestly say with every ounce of me that my experience with Shiva has been nothing but pure, ineffable love. That is beyond description. That is my experience of Shiva. So when I hear the story, I go, this, you must be talking about another Shiva because the Shiva I know is not the one you're talking about. Where does the story come from then? Where, what do you think that, that split is, that dichotomy? This is my two cents. I, I feel if you look at Hindu timeline, you have the, the Vedas and the Agamas, which are the core scriptures of Hinduism, but most Hindus kind of buy into that. They are revealed scriptures a few thousand years ago. They were orally passed down and then eventually written. And then at some point, uh, I believe about 1300 BC or something, you, you can look in Dancing with Siva that has a beautiful timeline in there. Again, don't quote me on the dates because you, you need to check. I don't, I don't remember off the top of my head. Uh, the Puranas came about. And the Puranas are these folk narrative stories uh, that lasted, I think, for a period of 1,500 years or so when these Puranas were written for all these different sects and everything like that. My simple take on it, and this is purely mine, right? And I could be completely wrong about this, is that monks and priests like myself 
right? Wandering through India, sharing that God is all pervasive, that God, Parasiva, is timeless, formless, spaceless, and causeless. You know, but beyond the self, God is also pure energy permeating everything. So I turn up in a village and I'm telling the story. The villagers are hearing me around the campfire at night because that's where people gather. They go like, what is this guy smoking? Right. What do you mean by timeless and formless? Right. And, and I go like, yeah, they kind of wrap their head around this because they're probably not educated. They don't have the same training or understanding or experience. So, so I try to quantify God. Then I say, God's in, God's up there in the sky. It's like, okay, he lives in heaven. It's easy to point to the stars. Then is God a man, a woman? So, you know, I tell the story that God's a man. And then all the women are going like, well, so there's no women up in heaven. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, there's a woman, you know, there's Shakti and, and then, you know, that's my story. Of, and then you put man and woman together, what are you going to get? Babies, right? Look around, there's 7 billion of us on this planet wandering around. And then, you know, I walk away, I go to the next village. A year later, I, I circle back in, in my wandering and spreading of Hinduism. I come back to the same village. It's like Netflix season two. You know, you just got to add more meat to the story. Well, sorry, we're Hindus. Add more spice to the story, right? And and then I keep adding, embellishing, and making the story great and wonderful. And look, I, I can tell the story, but imagine if it was passed down 2,000 years, how accurate will the story be 2,000 years later when we don't have an iPhone or TikTok to record it and yeah. pass it along? You have a spiritual game of telephone before there's telephones basically right yeah. yeah and 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 then the story is mocked but you know people made up stories and and then obviously to make it more exciting you know have a couple of drinks around the fire and you know you 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 add some violence and the bad there always has to be a bad guy what kind of story is there without a bad guy i mean you watch tom and jerry there's a bad guy in there right so i mean why would you not tell add a bad guy to the mix of the whole thing so the bad guy comes he kidnaps the wife takes the wife back to his kingdom the gods upset so now he rages war that lasts ten thousand years there's an army of five million people they war and finally he wins he comes back and then the other king rewards him for bringing his daughter back his wife and so on and so forth and you know now fast forward to 2021 we've got volumes of stories all of which is this like bizarre hack in you know, great Netflix entertainment. And, all, and most of which are riddled with violence and contradicts the core fundamental belief of Hinduism, which we are a nonviolent religion. We believe and see God in everything. We strive to see God in everything. We promote peace, compassion, empathy, love. And, and the biggest saddest thing for me is that as a Shaivite, not a Shakta or Vaishnava Smata, as a Shaivite, people refer to Shiva as the god of destruction. I, I remember praying at the Ganesha. I love going to the Ganesha temple in Flushing. You know, it's one of my favorite places to go to. And it takes forever to get there, even when I was living in New York, because it takes forever to get anywhere in New York. Uh, uh, but, you know, I, I remember sitting there in front of Ganesha and, and, and praying to him. And there were three young, two boys and a girl next to me. They must be in their 20s, college type age of post-college. Uh, one boy, I heard one boy remark to the other two, oh, when Shiva opens his third eye, that's it. It's complete destruction. He only does that when he's really angry. 
And I'm like, holy smokes, I wouldn't want to upset this dude. Would you? Would you go up to a guy holding a semi-automatic and piss him off? Probably not. So if that's a deity that can open his third eye and obliterate the entire universe, why would you upset him? Shiva's made out to be this angry, angry, destructive deity. He is nothing but love. How do you bridge those two? Reason. You start having conversations and you reason out the misconceptions. You reason out, you know, in my parents' generation, I'm in my mid-40s, right? I'm not sure how old you are. I'm assuming. Same, same age, yeah. Same age. Okay. So in my parents' generation, and I grew up in a traditional Hindu, Sri Lankan, Tamil family. My parents just believe stuff. My mom watches religious shows on TV and she'll tell me on the phone what she watched and be like, mom, do you really believe? Did you just hear what you just said to me? So absurd, right? So they, they don't question, they don't think, but the younger generation of Hindus, our generation, the next generation of Hindus, they're asking questions. We're trained to think, we're trained to ask questions, we're trained to reason. I grew up in a society in Malaysia where reason was not part of my education. I was told to believe things and repeat what I was told. And if I wasn't, I would be caned. All right. So I just repeated what I was told, but my daughter is not that way. Other, other young Hindus are not that way. So how do we bridge the misconceptions? We sit down, we identify what are the core principles that we also try to, a few of which I've shared and we agree on as that forms the basis of Hinduism. And then let's have a conversation of reason and logic and see if that aligns with that. And if it's not aligned, then we don't do, you know, we, we, we don't subscribe to it and, and we can dismiss it as something that came up along the way, a necessity perhaps for a certain era in time. Right. I am not saying that it's bad, you know, it's, it's just, it's not what's needed now. We live, we live in a different era of, of reason and conversation and understanding, you know, and, and unless we can sit down and have dialogue, unemotional dialogue, intellectual dialogue, reasonable dialogue with empathy and compassion, can we strive to understand each other and bridge gaps, create harmony, build community and support one another. But if not, it's, it's all doomed. Well, there's no future for Hinduism going down this road of the Puranas and Siva Ashram is built. And one of the purpose for Siva Ashram is to dismiss that. And if I can do it for one person, I die knowing I made some progress. Did you go up to talk to those kids or did you just hear did the kids at the Ganesh temple? Oh no, I, I didn't. I just said them. I, you know, it's, yeah. I, I, I believe in taking a very, methodical strategic approach right i mean it, i sat with them would be like a two-hour conversation that would result in nothing but a waste uh, of time yeah it's effective communication they probably wouldn't have been in the mind it, it, they would have been like no. who is this guy coming up to talk to me exactly and why it's none of my business i wasn't invited anyway so yeah yeah one final at least planned question you know for the past 15 months we've collectively been living through the pandemic we went from new york to Florida, I believe you said in our pre-conversation, now Costa Rica, you know, everyone has a different situation, but everybody here 
has been living through some form of crisis, some acute, some more just yeah. chronic. What do Hindu teachings have to say about navigating through this sort of situation? I ask this because here in California, things are clearing up largely. Costa Rica seems to be on a slow downward trajectory, but not everywhere is like that. And this could rear its head again. What, what do Hindu teachings have to say? about all of this. Yeah. And, and this is purely for a Hindu audience, right? So I'm going to go uh, largely. Yes. Yeah. Go, go, go. Yeah. Full Hindu. <laughs> um, and, and I, and I thank you for giving me this opportunity because I love talking about my religion and I don't get a chance to talk about it very much in, in the general work that I do. Um, so I, I would say with, with Hinduism, we're, we're so blessed with the, the teachings, the insights, information that there exists in our planes of existence. So we have the Buloka, the physical plane, then there's the astral plane and the causal plane. So the Devaloka and the Shivaloka, these are not planets that exist far away, rather they are planes of existence that exist right here, right now, but are vibrating at a frequency level that's outside our visual spectrum. I'll give you a simple uh, you have a uh, story to illustrate this. Have you ever seen the movie Ghosts with Patrick Swayze and Demi Moore? It's like way I, back. Yeah, I believe I've seen at least part of it. I know the general idea. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, Patrick Swayze gets shot in, in an alleyway. He chases the, the gunman away. He comes back. He sees his wife crying over his dead body. It's only at this point does he realize that he's dead. So now he's functioning in this astral body. No one can see him, not even his wife. Whoopi Goldberg, who's another character in that movie, uh, is psychic and she can see dead people. So she's able to see into this a certain spectrum of this astral plane. So Hindus subscribe to that, right? We, we subscribe to various levels of existence from physical to astral to deeper, more refined inner planes of existence. And in, the, in these inner planes of existence, there exist devas, literal translation would be angels and, and Mahadevas, great angels. Ganesha would be an example of a Mahadeva. Kathikeya, Murga, Hanuman would be an example. These are beings that we can communicate with if we knew how to. And, and we're also blessed in Hinduism that we've been shown how to communicate with them. One method of communication is through the home shrine. Uh, another way is through the temple. Right? The temple creates a portal that bridges the physical plane with the inner planes. So through the ritual of the puja, the, the priest is, so to speak, dialing in the frequencies to match, to connect this both worlds together. And when both worlds are connected, uh, beings on the other side or on these inner planes can send rays of light and energy to help with our needs, our wants, uh, send thoughts through so that we have insights to gain a different perspective on how to act. So when, when we have a crisis like this, the best thing a Hindu can do, one of the best things Hindus can do is to turn to these devas, to these Mahadevas, and seek guidance from them, seek blessings from them, seek their positive energy, their light to help heal us, uh, help us gain a different perspective on how to move forward, how to handle what we've gone through. So I, I encourage Hindus to set up a vigil every day at your home shrine. If you have a home shrine at home, if you don't have, then establish one. And it doesn't have to be complicated. And the first deity that you should reach out to is Ganesha. He lives very, very close to the earth plane, so he's very easy to connect. All you need is a picture of him, uh, a small statue of him. 
you know, and, and sit down and have a conversation. I, I don't encourage people to be meditating during a crisis. You know, I, I recently did an interview with someone in, in India, maybe a, a month or a month and a half ago. And as you know, they've had a terrible run of this pandemic. And he was asking me, you know, what should Hindus do? Should we be meditating? And I go, how do you expect to meditate when you've just lost a sibling or a parent or a child? I know I couldn't, right? So the best thing to do now is sit with Ganesha, light a lamp, and have a conversation with him. Treat Ganesha, treat these deities, uh, your Easter Devata, your, your, date, your, your favorite deity or the deity that you resonate with the most, as an intelligent being. So look at it like if you went to a doctor, you don't say to the doctor, I'm sick. He's probably going to say, well, obviously, if not, why are you here? What, what's your ailment? Is it your arm? You know, okay, my arm's hurting. What, is it a sharp pain, acute pain? You know, you have to provide him information in order for the doctor to help you. So the same way, when you sit with Ganesha, you sit with these deities, Share with them what you're feeling. Open up. Have a conversation the same way you would have a conversation with someone you trusted, someone you loved, who you knew had huge amounts of capacities of empathy, uh, compassion, and love so that you can be completely vulnerable. And if you can open up to the deities and share with them what you're feeling, it gives them, first of all, permission, because Hinduism works on permission. I have to give them permission for them to help me with my life, if not they're interfering with my life and they're accumulating karma for themselves, right? So I'm giving them permission to help me. And then I'm being very, very clear. I'm articulating clearly as, as well as I can in the crisis to them, what's troubling me. Now they have enough information and wisdom and maturity to see how they can outline the subsequent steps of guiding me. But I need to turn up every day, right? Because Session one may be them just giving me a hug, so to speak. Session two may be them saying a few words. And by session 15 or 20 is them now giving me a plan of action, an action item to do, right? Something that I can actually go do. And it can come from a, in a form of an insight that you gain while you're sitting with Ganesha. It goes like, oh, you know what? I should start doing this. I love doing this and it's going to help me feel better. Why didn't I think of it before? <laughs> Right. So that's why the consistency of having a vigil, uh, having a dialogue, building that relationship with the deity. And, and that's the blessing of Hinduism that we have. And we all Hindus should leverage that uh, in a pandemic. But never also one thing I'll just add, never forget to show gratitude to, to these deities. You know, bring bring an offering, whether it's a flower, a fruit. Ganesha doesn't want a banana. Uh, you know, I, I, trust me, he's he's not after banana. The, the offering that you give him is as uh, a gesture of your gratitude in one one sense, right? Make sure to always say thank you at the end of your sitting. I think we can sometimes think it's their duty to help us and just come, ask, and walk away. You know, don't don't be a brat. <laughs> You know, be be respectful and be grateful. Show some appreciation and make sure you always take time to express your gratitude for their presence in your life. It's very important. It's a good Hindu quality to cultivate. That's a great place to stop. But before we do, is there anything that you wanted to wanted to go over that we haven't? No, I, I would say you know, uh, for for the young Hindus that are listening. 
you know, that, that are interested in their religion, seek and understand what the fundamental concepts are, you know, develop your process of reason, understanding, and in, your, and in reasoning, do so gently, you know, so as you talk to your elders or your priests or monks in your community, don't bring your brashness of your youth to it, you know. If you don't understand something, if it doesn't make sense why she was cutting off Ganesha's head, ask with love and humility. Uh, try and understand, but but do so in a gentle way. We, we don't have to be arrogant when we're trying to understand something. Be, be gentle. I remember Ahimsa, right? Be gentle in that, but, but definitely don't abandon reason. And like that monk said, you know, spirituality, reason doesn't have to end where spirituality begins. How can people follow you? Instagram. I think that's why you follow your Hindu priest these days. Uh, are at Dandapani or is it, what's the yeah, handle? It's, uh, the handles are at Dandapani LLC. At Dandapani was already taken. Uh, so uh, at Dandapani LLC, that's my handle for, you know, YouTube, Instagram, um, Facebook. And then, you know, you could go to my website, um, subscribe uh, um, to my newsletter. I send out an email every day. That's a free subscription. I do have an app. If you search Dandapani in the app store, play store, there's, there's a lot of free content. And then there's also some paid courses as well. Um, and then, you know, you can go to the sibahashram.org website if you're interested in the project and, you know, if you want to participate, help. Uh, we're always looking for people that can um, help with, with this whole project. But we're looking for, you know, proper help, not just, you know. And people come down and, and pick up a shovel and move things around or... Yeah, and also, yeah, I would say intelligent help, right? Helping things through, like how, how how can we make this happen? You know, physical labor is one thing, but, you know, intellectual labor of thinking through structure, process, you know, how, how do we share more of these concepts about Hinduism? You know, how do we spread it? How do we reach out to youth? What is the best way to reach out to them? How do we get younger Hindus to, to hear about this? You know, if it resonates, that kind of stuff, you know. That's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please take a minute and leave us a nice five-star review. It's how you can help the show get discovered by more listeners. You can help ensure that more of these get made by making a donation to HAF at www.hinduamerican.org slash donate. And before you go, a quick message. The Hindu American Foundation proudly supports We Can Do This, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services nationwide COVID-19 and vaccine education campaign. Our community has been hit hard by COVID-19, and many of us need help in getting educated about how we can get vaccinated. Our organization is working hard to ensure our community has access to important information in our fight against COVID. Learn about COVID-19 vaccinations and get help scheduling your vaccination at vaccines.gov. We can do this.